Morning King's Church Kingston, hope you're doing well. I hope you found the video we just showed inspiring and it stirs you to give generously for our gift day next week. Isn't it a privilege, a privilege to be able to partner in projects like that? If you're a visitor here this morning, just coming along, logged into church, really warm welcome. Hope you're having a good morning and I hope what I say in the next few minutes will really serve you. We're going to continue our preaching series from the book of Philippians. If you're a Bible, why don't you turn to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be looking from verses 1 to verses 11. But it starts when we're very young, the need to prove ourselves so that we're accepted by friends or a group. So in the playground, two children are playing. One child mentions that they have a certain type of toy that the child who's playing with them mentions, oh, I've got a toy like that, but my one's bigger. My one's better, my one's newer, my one's more expensive. And there's this one-upmanship that takes place as children vie to show that they should be accepted. As adults, we often have this same kind of desire for acceptance that takes place. It's more subtle, but often when we meet people for the first time, we put our credentials on the table as if to say, you know what, I should be accepted into this group or by you. So often when talking within the first five minutes of being introduced, uh, people have mentioned their careers, they've mentioned academic achievements, family, and lots of those things are markers to say, look, I belong here. You know what, pastors, when they meet together, if they don't know each other, often not immune from this. I've noticed that pastors will sometimes talk about church size, number of conversions, number of healings. And that's not, sometimes, and most of the time, that's probably just out of a heart saying, look, I want to celebrate what God's doing. And isn't it wonderful all the things he's doing? But sometimes there may be a mix of motives that says, you know what, I want to show that I've got the credentials to be part of this group, have a seat at the table, have a platform in this group and be part of this thing. Our motives can even be mixed. You see, in these scenarios, the desire is group acceptance. And the key question is, what is required from us to be accepted? What credentials are required in order to be accepted? And the passage we're looking at today addresses this very issue. However, the question it raises is, what is required in order to be accepted into the family of God? What's needed in order to be accepted by God and adopted into his family? This was a question the early Christians wrestled with. Christianity was birthed from Judaism. However, through Jesus' death and resurrection and then the subsequent pouring out of the Holy Spirit on both Jews and non-Jews, it became clear to the disciples that Jesus wasn't just the saviour of the Jews, but he was the saviour of the world. The door of salvation was flung open to people from every tribe, tongue and nation and no one was excluded. Consequently, as the gospel spread across the known world, churches were being established, and some of these churches were largely Gentiles, so non-Jewish people. Some of them were exclusively made up of Gentiles. These people had genuinely put their trust in Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And then what happened was some Jewish Christians started coming amongst them and saying things like, it's fantastic you've put your faith in Jesus. But it's not enough. In order to be accepted in, as, into the people of God, 
You non-Jewish believers also need to be put, give me circumcised, a physical sign of the covenant God made with the people of Israel. You also need to follow the Old Testament laws. In other words, to be welcomed into God's family, it's not enough to simply believe in Jesus. These Jewish Christians' message, the Judaizers as they were called, was a Jesus plus message. So Jesus plus certain things. Believe in Jesus and do certain things. And if you do these certain things and believe in him, you will be welcomed into the family of God. And Paul, who wrote this letter, who spent most his time uh, sharing the good news of Jesus with those who were Gentiles, those who were non-Jewish people, he wrote, you know what, that message they're saying is no gospel at all. It's to be completely rejected. Let's read from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11, and Nick's going to read for us. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Today we're going to look at this passage under three titles, the great gain, the great gift and the great goal. So in verse one, Paul urges the brothers to rejoice in the Lord. As we've mentioned before, it's a theme of the letter. But also, rejoicing in God is a practical way we're going to apply the teaching that Paul gives us today. As we rejoice in God, we remember that we put our hope and our trust in God and not in ourselves. That he's the centre and we're not. In verse 2 then, Paul then tells the believers to beware of those Jewish Christians who would come amongst them and say, that as well as believing in Jesus, they also needed to be circumcised if they wanted to be welcomed into the family of God. Paul says, you know what, this isn't just a minor distortion they've brought. Their teaching is not the gospel and it's heresy. He describes these people as evildoers. He describes them as dogs. That's an offensive word. It was the words Jews used to describe non-Jews, those who didn't know the scriptures. Paul calls these people mutilators of the flesh, words used elsewhere to describe the behaviour of pagan priests. It's not minor distortions, they've gone for major 
distortion and rejection of the truth. And then Paul contrasts these people with the Philippians and himself. And he says, we are the circumcision. Paul is saying, look, you Philippians, you may not be physically circumcised, but you bear the marks that show you are the people of God. And then Paul highlights in verse three, three evidences of this. The spirit of God is at work in them. They boast in Jesus Christ and they put no confidence in the flesh. When Paul says you put no confidence in the flesh, what does he mean? Gordon Fee, in his commentary on Philippians, writes it like this. Flesh here refers first to the rite of circumcision, but now carries all the theological overtones of trying to have grounds for boasting before God in human achievement. In other words, he's saying these Philippian believers have the spirit working in them, they glorify Jesus, and they're not trusting in their own human achievements to give them right standing with God. And it's these three things that's an evidence that they belong to God and they're, and they're his people. Paul then unpacks this truth by explaining about his life. In verses four to six, he basically says, you know what, if in the past anyone could have impressed God by his background and by faithful rule keeping, it was me. Paul says, you know what, I wasn't just circumcised, but I was circumcised on the eighth day as prescribed by the law. I wasn't just a Jew, I was from the tribe of Benjamin, one of the faithful tribes, the tribe where King Saul, the first king of Israel, came from, and the only tribe that remained faithful to the tribe of Judah, when all the other tribes rebelled. Paul says, you know, I didn't just follow God's laws, I was a Pharisee, one of the, strict, the strictest sect within Judaism. And Pharisees added further rules to the law to make sure they carefully obeyed everything. Paul says, you know, I wasn't just zealous as a Jew, I was so committed that I led the charge of persecuting Christians. He says, you know, in terms of following God's laws, I was blameless. In other words, he followed the, the laws, the external regulations to the letter. And then Paul writes these amazing words in verses seven to eight. So he gives this list of all his credentials in terms of heritage and also in terms of his behaviour. And rule keeping and good works. But then it says this, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Paul writes about the great gain. The great gain is knowing Christ Jesus. And then Paul turns to the world of accounting. Prior to becoming a Christian, if you had spoken to Paul and said, what are your assets? What is most valued by you? He would have pointed to his background. He would have pointed to his zealous following of all the law. This was what he prized. This was the source of his identity and his confidence before God. Yet then Paul encountered the living God on the road to Damascus and he put his faith in Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And it was a game changing moment. And actually, in that moment, the accounting system completely changed. 
All the assets to do with his background and his faithful rule keeping were moved to the lost column. And knowing Christ was the one item that was put in the asset column. You see, the wonder of the gospel message is it's an invitation to know God, not just to adopt a set of beliefs. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walked and talked with God. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, we're told the barrier of sin has been broken. And those who put their trust in Jesus as Lord and as their saviour can once again walk with God, talk with God, know God. The great gain in Christianity is knowing Christ Jesus. And this is more than knowing about Christ Jesus, it's about knowing him. There is both an intimacy and a devotion. It's about knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Not just Christ Jesus, the Lord, he's the one who's my Lord, the one who I know, the one who I uh, talk to, chat to share my life with. But also, there's a devotion. He is the Lord. He's the one who calls the shots. And this knowing is for us to be experienced day by day in the here and in the now. And Paul is saying, compared to the wonder of knowing Jesus, everything else, everything else I used to value so dearly, I count as a loss. Nothing else is in the game, profit column. And Paul is writing at this point, having suffered so much for the sake of following Jesus. He's writing from a prison in Rome, under house arrest, because of his faith. And he's saying, you know what? But everything is a loss compared to knowing Christ. And he looks back on the things he used to prize. He used, looks back on the things he used to hold dear and his identity was shaped by it. And he says, you know what, compared to knowing Jesus, all these things are rubbish. Now the Greek word for rubbish is skubalon. And it's far stronger than just the word rubbish or trash that some of the Bible translations use. It's almost been sanitised, those translations. This literal meaning is what dogs eject, or dog excrement. You know, it's meant to shock us. Paul says uh, that... The things he used to hold dear, that built his, he built his identity upon. You know what, they're worthless compared to knowing Christ. Actually, they're like dog feces. And what, when Paul says that, it makes us go, my word, what are the things that we prize most? Whether that's in our human achievements or through our background and our heritage. And Paul tells us to look at our credentials, look at the things that we cling to, and recognise that compared to knowing Christ, they're worthless. Compared to knowing Christ, they are like dog feces. So we have this wonderful privilege of knowing Christ and not just knowing about him and growing in relationship with him. And compared to that, everything's a loss, Paul says. And after talking about the great gain, Paul then turns to talk about the great gift, which actually is the res results in the great gain. The, the results in the great game. Verses 8 to verses 9, let's read those together. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not in a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The great gift is righteousness that comes from God. Righteousness means being in the right with God. And then Paul highlights in this passage two ways that people attempt to be accepted and stand before God as righteous. The first way is a righteousness that is our own, that comes from the law. For Paul, it was on him relying on following the Jewish law to the letter and seeking to do everything it said. This way of righteousness emphasises earning God's favour by human efforts. If I do enough, God will approve me. But the challenge of this is the uncertainty. Have you ever done enough? And also, what does God do with the wrong that you've done? Does he just brush it under the carpet? Does this take our sin seriously enough? But one approach, and almost probably the most prevalent approach people think about is, you know what, it's about my human efforts. If I do enough, I will earn God's approval. God will say, yes, you're righteous. And then Paul just contrasts it with a second way of righteousness. Righteousness is a gift. You see, the Bible tells us that no one's righteous, not even one. The prophet Isaiah describes that even our best efforts are like filthy rags. The Bible's verdict is clear. By our own efforts, we cannot achieve righteousness. Yet the Bible explains that the great gift of righteousness comes from a great exchange. When Jesus came to earth in order to be saviour of the world, he lived the life that we couldn't live. A perfect, fully righteous life. He never sinned. And he died the death that he didn't deserve to die. A criminal's death on a cross. The death of a rebel. And the Bible says, why does he do that? What, what was the purpose? He did that because in dying the death he didn't deserve, he took our sins upon himself. And with the life that he lived, that we could have lived, the righteous life, he gives that righteous life for us. A great exchange took place. So we gave Jesus our sin on the cross and he carried it for us and he gave us his righteousness. Paul puts it like this. God made him who had no sin become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. And Paul tells us that this way, this gift of righteousness is received, is through faith in Christ. When John G. Patton was working in the New Hebrides, he was translating the Bible, and he was struggling to find the local word to translate for the word faith. And he was thinking about it, and at that time he was interrupted by someone in great trouble and in need, saying, please may I come and lean heavily upon you. And there was that eureka moment where John G. Patton thought, now that is the nub of the word I'm going to use for faith in my translation. You see, faith is leaning heavily upon Christ. It's on stopping trying to labour. It's on ceasing doing, but simply putting all our confidence and all our trust 
for righteousness upon what Jesus has done rather than upon our own efforts. The gift of righteousness from God requires our putting our whole trust and leaning our whole weight on what God has done and not our efforts. So Paul talks about the great gift, which is a righteousness from God, which is given to us through faith, believing, trusting in what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection. Then finally, Paul talks about his great goal. Paul writes this. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The great goal is knowing Christ. Now Paul's shown us how the great gain is knowing Christ. However, it's also the great goal. It's what he's living for. After all, Paul had said, everything is a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now Paul's not striving for God's approval. He's secure in the righteousness that God has given him through faith in Christ. However, he's not complacent either. He's pressing on to know Jesus more. He knows there's always more to know of who Jesus is. There's always more depths to plumb of the wonder of who Jesus is and walking with him. And Paul says, you know, as I walk with him, as I know him more, my expectation is that I will know Jesus' resurrection power at work in me. And this power actually will enable me to suffer for the gospel, to take up my cross and to follow where Jesus will lead. You know what? As we walk with Jesus, as we seek to know him more, we should be knowing his resurrection power at work in us and actually also him changing us. And giving us power to enable us to lay down our lives for others. And sometimes that may be suffering. It certainly will be costly as we learn to live a cruciform life, which says, not my will, but yours be done. So there's a great gain, a great gift and a great goal. But how do we respond to this? I think the first way to respond if you're someone who believes and put your faith in Jesus, Lord and Saviour, is to rejoice and celebrate in this truth. Paul said in verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. And that's what we should do. We should celebrate the wonder of the righteousness that we've received as a gift, of the security of that, of the fact we haven't got to strive to know will God accept us. And a second response is to reassess our priorities. Paul said, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And the question for us to ask is, does our life reflect that? Do we live with that single mindedness? And if not, what things need to shift? What does it mean for knowing Christ and how we can prioritise that in our life? If you're exploring the Christian faith, I'd urge you to keep exploring, particularly to look at the evidence for Jesus' death and resurrection, which is the linchpin of Christianity, its cornerstone, if you like. Now, it may be that you've been exploring the Christian faith for some time. You've come to the conclusion that it's true, but you haven't yet responded to the gospel invitation to turn to Jesus, Lord and Saviour, and come to know the righteousness 
that is a gift from God through faith in Christ. And if that's you today, and you want to respond and commit your life to Jesus, you can click on the button that's likely to appear at the bottom of the page now, and you'll be able to chat and pray with one of our prayer team. We'll be able to help you respond and answer your questions. But let's finish this morning by responding in an appropriate way of worship, of thanking God for who he is and what he's done. Savior of the world.